This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Um, so tonight we are going to um, be looking at using stories to confront. All right. Um, just to catch everyone up for where we're at in the class, we've talked about storytelling in general. We've talked about some specific uh elements of well-told stories, and then we've been talking about different areas of life, different ways that we can use stories as we're seeking to use them to, to point others to Christ. We're finishing up that section tonight, so this is the last time we're going to be looking at that, and then we've got a couple of wrap-up lessons in the next couple of weeks, um, and if you want uh, to be refreshed on exactly what we'll be covering, you can look at your syllabus and your notebook, but... Uh, but we're, we're drawing to a close, and so tonight as we're, we're finishing up this section talking about specific ways we can use stories, I hope this will be a help to us. Uh, this is one of the things I wouldn't have thought of off the bat with how we use stories, but it's something I think we see a lot in Scripture, and uh, I think there's a lot for us to glean from this tonight. So let's pray together, and then we'll take a look at a biblical story. Father, thank you so much for the way you use your word in our hearts. Thank you for how you challenge us. Thank you that your truth does not leave us where we are, but uh, um, shows us what's wrong and what needs to change and how we need to be more like Christ. And Father, as we are called to uh, bring your word to bear on the lives of others and help them to see how their lives need to come into line with what you say. I pray that you'd help us to uh, see tonight the way that stories can play a part in that and uh, help us look at this subject uh, biblically in a way that's, that's, that's right and it's guided by your spirit in a way that's also practical and that we can apply directly to our lives and use for your glory. We love you. Uh, thank you for using us. Thank you again for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the aging prophet enters the banquet hall, the signs of drunken revelry are everywhere. There are vessels half full of wine that line the tables, which are piled with a dazzling array of sumptuous, half-eaten food. But despite the signs of wanton excess, the mood in this room is not one of gluttonous debauchery. Instead, on every face, there are stunned expressions of dismay, confusion, an abject fear. Drunkenness has been replaced with dread. The king visibly trembles with fear as he addresses this prophet, Art thou that Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? Yes, this is indeed Daniel. And the king directs Daniel's attention to a collection of words that are etched into the plaster of the wall. This evening was meant to be one of revelry and joyful abandon. Yes, the army of the enemy surrounds the city of Babylon. But Belshazzar is confident in the ability of his mighty city to hold off even a prolonged siege. At least, he wants to project confidence. And what better way to tell the whole city that there's nothing to worry about than to invite all of his officials to a boisterous party. So that's what he did. But the drunken party came to a terrifying halt 
when words began to appear on the wall. No one saw a body, not even a hand, only fingers, disembodied fingers, slowly carving these words into the white plaster. And what made the whole spectacle even more frightening was the fact that no one in this educated Babylonian crowd has been able to read or understand the words. Now Belshazzar gestures to the words and he tells Daniel, if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. Well, Daniel responds with a curt refusal of any gift. Let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. He promises Belshazzar that he will both read and interpret the unearthly writing. But first, he tells Belshazzar a story. The story is about a man Daniel knew quite well, Belshazzar's grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel talks about Nebuchadnezzar's glory. Nebuchadnezzar was a majestic king, a ruler like none other in his time. He was the sort of ruler who inspires envy and fear in the rulers of other countries. But, Daniel says, the glory was not to last. When his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him and he was driven from the sons of men and his heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. Now this episode in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which is told by Nebuchadnezzar himself in Daniel chapter 4, is a very uncomfortable piece of Babylonian history. But it is one that is familiar to Belshazzar. Daniel witnessed the change that came over Nebuchadnezzar as he turned his heart to God. But Daniel also knows that foolish pride and rebellion against God are the hallmarks of Belshazzar's reign. After all, that very evening, Belshazzar has toasted the pagan gods of Babylon as he, his officials, and his harem had drunk wine from gold and silver vessels taken from the Jewish temple. There's all too clear a correlation between Belshazzar's proud disregard for God and that of Nebuchadnezzar before the stint that he spent living as a wild animal. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, Daniel continues, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. Daniel points out how blasphemously proud Belshazzar must have been to desecrate the instruments meant for the worship of God by filling them with wine for his foolish feast. Belshazzar's failure to give God proper glory, Daniel tells the king, is what led to this writing on the wall. And the message of the words is simple and final. The Babylonian Empire is finished. The Medes and Persians will conquer, and Belshazzar will be overthrown.
Before the next day dawns, Belshazzar is dead, and Babylon belongs to the Persians. Daniel proclaimed judgment, and judgment came. But even as he was given one last opportunity to confront this king, to challenge him about the sinful pride of his ways, he chose to do so with a story. How many of you like confrontation? Okay, all right. I just want to make sure I know my audience, but that's what I thought. All right? Most of us don't just live for the opportunity to go up to someone and tell them that they're wrong. And those who do enjoy it don't enjoy doing it in the right way. Most of us hate doing that. But sometimes we are called upon to confront someone else, to tell them where they are wrong, and to urge them to make it right. So how do we do that in a way that is both firm and kind, that isn't too preachy, but it still clearly gets the point across? Stories can be a really effective tool in confronting others in a variety of different areas. And actually, as I started to study the subject of how we see people use stories in Scripture, I was surprised by how often this theme came up. How often, as we look at people in Scripture using stories, they're using them for the purpose of confronting other people. And we'll see a lot of those examples tonight. And I hope that you'll see clearly how uniquely stories can be used in this difficult work of confrontation. So we're going to look at several areas particularly. First of all, confronting ignorance. So how do you tell someone, you're stupid, (laughs) without saying, you're stupid? Sometimes people are just ignorant. They don't know things that they need to know. Or they think they know, and they don't know. And we need to confront them and help them understand the ignorance of their ways. It can be easy to be cruel and condescending when we point out other people's ignorance. But throughout scripture, we see examples of people informing the ignorance of others in a way that is gracious. And sometimes they do it by using a story. Consider Proverbs 7. Young men are often ignorant. And one of the ways that young men can often show their ignorance is how they look at sexual things. They can often adopt a cavalier attitude towards sexual sin. So on the one side, they might think, ah, it's not a big deal. On the other side, they might say, I would never do that. But either way, their perspective is immature and is ignorant. And I, I know, partially from experience, how ignorant the perspective of a young man can be. Wisdom understands that caution is a much more mature perspective. In Proverbs 7, Solomon wants to warn his son about ignorance in that very area. And he does so by telling him a story about an ignorant young man. Solomon tells how he looked out his window and saw this young man walking down the street, and Solomon knew where he was headed. That road leads to the house of an adulterous woman. And sure enough, she steps out, she kisses the young man, she speaks to him with words that drip with sensual flattery, and she draws him into her net, enticing him into sin. 
Everything is prepared. Her husband is away. This is their opportunity. Solomon tells this story and then likens the young man to an ignorant ox being led to the slaughterhouse. It's a vibrant simile. And the revelation of this young man's ignorance serves as Solomon's challenge to the potential ignorance of his own son. It's a warning for him not to fall into the same trap. Solomon's story about watching a young man give in to this temptation is a gentle yet gripping word of caution. So sharing a story, especially your own, can be effective in warning in a way that is powerful, but it doesn't sound like nagging. Think with me about trying to talk to a teenager about the challenges and dangers of peer pressure. Which of these two approaches do you think would be more effective? So option A, don't give in to peer pressure. Peer pressure is dumb. You don't need to worry about what other people think or say about you. None of that really matters. Being cool isn't important. Just ignore it. All right? Many of those statements might be accurate, but it's probably not going to be very effective, right? On the other hand, maybe you could tell this teenager about that guy you knew when you were a a teenager who everyone thought was the bee's knees. Except you wouldn't say that because that wouldn't be something. That's something that only old people say. All right. But everyone thought this guy had it all together. He, he was where it's at. But then you could tell them about how that guy ended up being a total jerk. And he threw his life away. Neither one of those approaches would be foolproof. But I'm pretty sure they would listen to option B a whole lot better than option A. And it would likely stick with them and influence their perspective on peer pressure more than the other. So stories can help us to inform others' ignorance. But stories can also help us in confronting error. So we're talking about ice cream. And I say, I think coffee ice cream is the best kind of ice cream. And you say, no, you're wrong. The best is Rocky Road. What's going to happen to my opinion about coffee ice cream being the best? Is it going to get stronger or weaker? It's going to get stronger. I might have started by saying, you know, I think this, this is the best flavor of coffee. But if you come back and say, no, that's not right. This is the best flavor. The I think is going to go away. And I'm going to stand more strongly on my opinion, right? I'm going to hold my ground that much more firmly because you pushed back. You disagreed with me, and so I'm ready to, I'm ready to go. The more strongly you argue against my initial opinion, the more strongly I will choose to hold on to that opinion. Argument tightens my hands on my initial position. Stories are gentler. Because a story makes someone curious, it doesn't feel so much like a personal attack 
it's going to prepare someone to hear something that maybe they don't agree with. It's not going to put them in the defensive position right away. It, it makes me think of Proverbs 15.1. You know that verse. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Argument encourages anger. You get into an argument with someone, and you're just going to, to, to bring that anger up. It's not going to accomplish anything. Gentleness, on the other hand, encourages reflection. And that's why the gentleness of stories is such a blessing and why it can be so helpful in this work of confrontation. You know, Jesus was not afraid to tell the scribes and Pharisees what's what. But it's really interesting to me how often when he confronted their error, he incorporated a story. Read through the four Gospels and see how many stories Jesus used to confront the error of the Orthodox Jews. Often with that crowd, Jesus' stories would confront bad theology. Many of the Jews of Jesus' day simply did not understand the truth of who God is and how he works. They had a warped view of God. And so Jesus confronted that warped view of God, and that's where many of his parables come in. So consider Luke 15. Jesus is surrounded there by an attentive group of, of common people. These are sinners. These are, some of them are tax collectors. These are people that, that other people know are sinners. And they're gathered around to hear Jesus. Well, the self-righteous religious elite see this, and they turn up their noses at it. And they begin to whisper among themselves about Jesus' scandalous behavior. He's associating with the scum of society, and they can't believe this. Well, Jesus confronts their error by asking, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Jesus clearly reveals that these Jewish leaders' priorities and God's perspective are way out of alignment. They've got bad theology. A misunderstanding of who God is and how he works. And Jesus confronts that bad theology with a story. Stories can also confront error by pushing back against unfair criticism. The prophet Amos was a common man. He wasn't uh, highly educated. He wasn't among the elite. Um, he was not a member of the, the religious establishment. But he's a prophet of God called to confront the nation, including the king and his court. And he's called to confront them about the nation's sin and coming judgment. Well, there were many people who were unimpressed with Amos' ministry. And one of them we see in Amos 7. 
a man named Amaziah. He's a priest in the city of Bethel, um, which I won't go into the history too much, but basically that's a center of worship, but it wasn't the right kind of worship to the true God. It was kind of a mix between pagan worship and proper worship that was set up by, by King Jeroboam. But he's this priest in Bethel. And Amos has come to Bethel. That's where the king is at this point. And he's, he's speaking to the king. He's speaking to the rulers there about the judgment of God that is coming. Well, Amaziah begins to mock Amos. And sarcasm drips from his words as he bids Amos to run back home to Judah and prophesy there instead of presuming he has something to say here in Bethel. Well, Amos' answer to Amaziah is clear, but it's free of the sarcasm and pride that mark Amaziah's words. Amos tells a story. Now, Amaziah has criticized him for presuming to have anything to say to the leader of the land. And Amos responds to that criticism by saying, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. But I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. So he begins by admitting, you're right, I don't belong here. I'm a common man. I, I, I'm not one of the religious elite. I'm not one of the political elite. I'm just a, a herdsman and a, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. But then he says, and the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, go prophesy unto my people Israel. In other words, you're right in one sense, Amaziah, I don't belong here. I'm not the guy that you'd pick for the job of preaching to the king. I don't have any credentials, except the one credential that matters. I'm called by God. God came to me and said, preach to the people of Israel. I'm not here because I belong here, Amaziah. I'm here because God told me to be here. And by, with this story, instead of engaging with an argument, in an argument with Amaziah, he counters that unfair criticism in a way that is, that is gentle yet powerful. Well, then Amos goes on, and uh, he declares the judgment of God on Amaziah personally. And he tells Amaziah that he's going to be killed, his land's going to be taken, his family's going to be destroyed. Um, but it's really interesting to me how... As Amos was, of course, obedient to the Lord, how he countered Amaziah's criti criticism, not with an argument, but with the story of his divine call. So stories can be helpful in confronting error. They can also help us in confronting sin. Now, this is really difficult. Galatians 6.1 calls on those who are spiritually mature to be actively involved in restoring those who are overtaken in a fault. So as Christians, we are called to keep each other accountable. We're called to confront each other when we see sin in each other's lives. But let's be honest, that is not an easy prospect. Stories can help us to engage in that difficult work in a way that's humble and gentle, but still clear and powerful. Uh, we considered in Luke 15 where Jesus reproaches the Jewish elite for their hypocritical view of the lost. He uses that story, the example of the 99 and the one that's lost. 
But then in that passage, he, he goes on. That one story is not all that he shares. He goes on to talk about a woman who sweeps her house and she searches diligently for a single lost coin. But then he really drives his point home with one of the best known stories of all time. A certain man had two sons. We call it the story of the prodigal son. And it beautifully illustrates realities of God's love for the lost and his goodness in receiving the sinner who repents and turns to him for mercy. But this story could also be called the story of the self-righteous brother. Because that's a big part of what Jesus is doing with this story. He's not just showing God's love for the lost. He's also showing these Jews something about themselves. He tells this story to reveal the sinful pride and the selfishness that have led these strict Jews to look down their noses at the common sinners that surround them. They want these sinners to be denied God's mercy. And Jesus uses this story to, to confront that and to help them to see the reality of, of their, their heart attitude. That is one of the things that stories can help as we're confronting people about their sin because stories can bring to light the true attitude of someone's heart. They can talk not just about the action that's been committed, but about the attitude behind it. And often that's really the root of the sin, what really needs to be dealt with. So here, Jesus uses this story in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, to rebuke his hearers. The story ends with the father saying to his elder son, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. The father's rebuke to his son also serves as God's rebuke to these Jewish leaders who are listening to Jesus. He's making it clear to them that they have a bad attitude. That they're filled with foolish pride towards these sinners. Sinners to whom Jesus is gladly reaching out with mercy and salvation. Their attitude is in opposition to the merciful, loving heart of God. So stories can be helpful in confronting sin because they can, they can help bring those attitudes to light. They can also help us confront sin because of how they, they can lead to confession. It's one of those things about stories is they don't, a good story doesn't just interest the mind. It also touches the heart. A good story is going to engage both the mind and the heart at the same time. And if you think about where we need to get to if we're going to make, be right, confess our sin and get right with the Lord, there is a, an aspect of the mind and also an aspect of the heart. We don't just need to know in our heads that we've sinned. We also need to know in our hearts that we've sinned. We need to, uh, sorry, only if our heart is involved do we really understand the true gravity of our sin. Are we really going to come to the Lord in the way that we need to, to get right? 
Probably the most familiar biblical example of a story being used to confront sin comes in 2 Samuel 12. There, King David has sinned, and he knows that he's sinned. We know that from, from Psalm 51, as he writes out the testimony of this time in his life. He knows that he's sinned. Um, in his mind, he is aware that his affair with Bathsheba and the arranged killing of Uriah were sinful acts. He knows this is sin. But that's not enough. He's miserable inside. He knows that things are not right, but he's allowing himself to harden his heart and refuse to confess and seek restoration. So he's in this this miserable situation of knowing he's not right with God, but having a hard heart and refusing to get right with God. Well, God in his mercy knows that something needs to penetrate David's heart. He needs to be brought face to face with his, sin, with his sin, not just in a way that he'll understand it in his mind, but in a way that will break that hard heart. And so God sends his prophet Nathan. And Nathan, as he has many times before, enters the king's presence to share a message from God. Now, this is a delicate situation. Because Nathan is aware of what's going on, and aware of the fact that this king, who is, has the power to do what he will, uh, is, has not chosen to get right. But Nathan also understands that he can't afford to be anything but straightforward with the king. He knows the foolishness of, of, of trying to not speak God's word clearly. So he knows he needs to be clear with the king. He needs to leave no question in his mind about how God views his sin. But he wants to do it in the right way. And so Nathan tells a story. Now, it's a heart-rending story about this man and his precious lamb and then the rich neighbor who steals that precious lamb and kills it to feed a guest rather than sacrifice one of the, the sheep from his own ample flocks. Well, David's heart is touched by this story and his anger burns against this heartless man. And he says, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's heart is touched and he is angered and he says, this is not right. Something needs to be done about this. This is something that has, has penetrated here for David. Well, the words that Nathan says next are like a dagger to the heart. Thou art the man. And he goes on to detail David's transgressions and the judgment that is going to result from David's sin. You know, I'm convinced that it's Nathan's story that finally broke through to David's heart. David's admission of sin is simple, but no doubt full of emotion. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is the turning point for David, where he finally makes this right. He finally confesses. He finally is restored in his own walk with the Lord. But it was a story that helped lead David to the point of confession. You know, a story might be the last thing many of us would think of if we're called upon to confront sin in somebody else's life. 
but it can be a powerful tool in doing just that in the lives of other people. Now, just as an aside here, uh, in this area of confrontation, especially confronting sin, this is a place where I think, um, like some of the other areas we've already talked about, where personal stories can be really effective. Now, I don't mean to suggest that we should draw unhelpful attention to our own sins. Um, that we should make some kind of grotesque show of what we have done. But if it's done with propriety and true humility, then sharing something about our own struggle with sin with others can help us to confront them about their sin in a way that is merciful rather than just critical. So this is a place to think about where you can share with others uh, what the Lord has done in your heart and times when you've got had to get right with the Lord. If you're encouraging somebody else to get right with the Lord, that can be really helpful. Now finally, stories can help us in confronting foolishness. Uh, there's a lot of foolishness in the world. Um, sometimes we can, we already talked about confronting ignorance, and sometimes we can kind of put those two together. But really, foolishness is different from ignorance because those who are foolish are those who should know better. But at some point along the way, they have chosen to live in opposition to the truth or in willful ignorance of the truth. This isn't just, hey, I'm immature and I don't know. This is, no, I'm pretty sure I know, but I'm going to do my own thing instead. Those who are foolish let themselves do and follow after things that they know better than to do or follow after. Again, this is an area where stories can help us, as we're trying to confront those um, who are exhibiting foolishness. Specifically, we can use stories to confront foolish decisions. Sometimes people decide to do things that they know they should not do. And sometimes we are the ones who are there and need to step up and say, that was foolish. You made a decision that you're going to regret. That was, that was wrong. So how can a story help us to say that? Well, there's an interesting and a, a pretty obscure story about a guy named Jotham in the book of Judges. So in Judges 9, this guy Jotham tells a story about trees. Now, Jotham is the youngest son of Gideon. You know, the guy with the, the lanterns and the pitchers. He's the one who led Israel to victory. Well, he was the, the judge for a while, and then he died. Well, in Judges 9, a guy named Abimelech, who is another one of Gideon's sons. He had a lot of sons. I don't remember how many, but it was a lot. Um, Ab Abimelech has decided to seize power. Now, this is the time of the judges, which means every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So it's kind of like the Old West, all right? Whoever has the, can, can draw the fastest is going to win the day. And so Abimelech is trying to, to do that. He wants to ensure that no one else will challenge his authority. So what better way to do that than to kill all the rest of Gideon's sons except himself? And so that's exactly what he does. He goes out. He has all of Gideon's sons killed, and he has himself crowned king in Shechem. Now, Jotham is the only one of the sons who survived the slaughter. And he hears about Abimelech's coronation in the city of Shechem, and he comes out of hiding long enough to make a speech. 
He wants to warn the inhabitants of Shechem about the decision they've just made. And uh, he uses what I would call a fable. So he stands at the top of a mountain. He calls down to them, shouting to make sure that he can be heard. And he says, the trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them. And they said unto the olive tree, reign now over us. But the olive tree said unto them, should I leave my fatness? Where, uh, sorry, wherewith by me they honor God and man and go to be promoted over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said the trees unto the vine, come thou and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said all the trees unto the bramble, Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees, If in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. You might say, that's a really weird speech to make. If you got one chance to speak to the people, what are you doing telling a story about trees talking to each other? Well, Jotham is telling these inhabitants of Shechem, Abimelech is the bramble. If they have acted wisely, they have nothing to fear. But if crowning Abimelech was a foolish move, then both he and the Shechemites will be devoured in the ensuing fire. He's warning them about the sort of man that they've chosen to be their leader. Did the Shechemites really want a king who thought it necessary to execute all of his rivals? Was this really a wise move? Were they not simply crowning this guy because they couldn't get anyone better to take the job? That's the point that Jotham is getting across with his story. And he had a disparaging opinion to offer. Nobody wanted to hear this at this point. And I think wisely expressed it through what could almost be called a fairy tale. He made his point clearly, and the story format gave him the chance to make his voice heard, even by those who were not very ready to hear his point of view. And by the way, Jotham was right. Abimelech's three-year stint as ruler was a complete train wreck, and it ended in carnage and disaster. We won't get into that, but stories can help us to confront foolish decisions. And they can also help us confront foolish perspectives. Uh, in Matthew 19:27, Jesus er, P- Peter asks Jesus a seemingly valid question. He says, "Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? What are we going to get for all that we've sacrificed for you, Christ? What, what do we have to look forward to? Well, Jesus talks about the wonderful privileges that await these men who are his faithful followers and and the things that await all those who, like them, will leave the good of this world for his sake. The rewards are real. But Jesus realizes that he needs to confront something because Peter's question did have a legitimate answer. There would be rewards. But... Jesus realized that the fact that Peter even asked that question revealed a misguided perspective. And so Jesus tells about a man 
who is tasked with caring for a vineyard. And as the sun rises one day, the caretaker of this vineyard goes out, and according to custom, he looks for day laborers, those who he can hire for the day to work in the vineyard. And right off the bat, he finds a group of people, and they talk, and they agree together, we'll work with you all day, all 12 hours of the working day, for a penny. And so they make this agreement, they go into the field. He goes out several times during the day, and he hires more more day laborers for the vineyard to work and and some of them it's you know three hours into the working day it's it's several more hours into the working day finally it's it's one hour until the working day is going to be done and he finds this group of men who are still just hanging around they haven't uh they aren't working anywhere he says he says what are you doing they say nobody's hired us for the day he says come on come work in the vineyard and i'll pay you whatever's good whatever's fair so they come and they work for one hour Everyone wraps up for the day. They get together. They're going to be paid for the day. And he starts with those who have only worked for an hour. And he shows great generosity. He gives them a penny, even though they've only worked for an hour. That's what the other guys agreed with for the whole day. And so the guys who started at the very beginning of the day start to get excited. What are we going to get if those guys got a penny? Let's see. Let's start counting it up. That's one hour. We did 12. So, man, we're going to get like 12 days worth. And so they're getting excited, wondering what they can expect. And then when he finally gets to them, he hands them a penny. And they begin to complain. They begin to protest. How is it that we got the same thing as them? Don't we deserve more since we've worked so much harder? He says, and, and, and he says to them, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst th- not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil, because I am good? Jesus' story was a rebuke to Peter. Those who focus too much on the reward they'll receive for their work for God, often fail to focus on what is really important. In light of the amazing privilege of being the servants of God, and in light of our eternal inheritance, does it really matter how God decides to reward one servant over another? He is good. Let us not develop an evil eye In other words, looking around, obsessed with comparisons because of the very goodness of God in letting any of us labor in the vineyard. It was the goodness of that master that even made those guys who'd worked all day start to look around and think, hey, this isn't fair. We can do the same thing. We start to look around and make comparisons. So Jesus clearly and compellingly confronted Peter's foolish perspective. You know, we're all going to be called on to confront others. It might be because of ignorance, because of error, because of sin, or because of foolishness. And I don't mean to suggest that we're going to enjoy it, or that it will ever become easy. But perhaps we can be more effective by diving into those situations armed with a story. But I will warn you that some of your most effective stories in those situations might be some of your most painful stories. It was the summer before my senior year of high school, 
and I was standing in the room over the garage because it was the quietest place in the house for a phone call. I was calling into work, and I remember I struggled to keep my voice steady as I told the manager that I wasn't going to be able to work the rest of that week or the following week. My family was making a trip that we'd made many times before. We were driving from Suffolk, Virginia to Pittsfield, Massachusetts. We'd been up there just a couple weeks before, and it had been lots of fun, as usual. But as we made the long drive this time, my emotions were mixed. As always, I'd enjoy the time off from work. I'd enjoy the pleasures of western Massachusetts in the summer. But there was something different about this time. My grandpa was sick, really sick. He had a stroke. And we were making the trip to go and say goodbye. It was after midnight when we reached the hospital. I remember standing with my family. We discussed his condition and what we were going to do. He was in a coma, so best that they could tell, he didn't know anyone was there. My parents asked if we wanted to go back and see him or if we just wanted to stay out in the waiting area. And I, I figured I wanted to remember him as the happy-go-lucky storytelling grandpa from a couple weeks before, so I chose to be one of those who would stay in the waiting area. And I, I can't remember exactly what we did. I think we just sat out there in silence. But it was all so overwhelming. Uh, I had never lost someone so close to me before. And none of us knew what to say to each other, what, what we were supposed to do, how to respond to this. It was just kind of stunned silence. And then one of my sisters started to cry. Now, I wasn't a touchy-feely guy, but... Something inside me urged me to go over and put my arm around her. Uh, I, I knew there was nothing that I could say, but I thought that maybe if I did that one simple thing, that, that it would help. It at least seemed like the right thing to do. But I didn't feel like it was something that I could do. Putting my arm around someone was not something that I did or something that I thought I was capable of doing. So I didn't. I just watched her cry. And I wished I could make myself do that simple thing that seemed so impossible. Well, the next day my grandpa passed away, and the few days that followed were full of ups and downs, the joys of family, and the sorrow of loss. But often since then, I've thought back to that time in the hospital waiting area in the wee hours of the morning. I missed an opportunity that night. But I also began to learn something. I began to learn something about love. Love reaches out. Love takes action, even in situations where it's uncomfortable to do so. The only way you can be a help to others is by trying to help. And when you try to help, sometimes you get it wrong and sometimes you get it right. But you'll never help if you don't try to help. And since that day, I've learned that I can put my arm around someone who's crying. I can give people hugs. I can ask them how they're doing and make it clear that I really want an answer. I can pray with people. I can sit and listen. Love is doing things that are uncomfortable and learning to embrace the discomfort for the good of someone else. Love reaches out even when it feels hard. 
And I had to fail at doing that to help me learn that lesson. Now, I don't like telling stories where I failed. But those things, too, are part of our lives. And maybe God allows some of those specific failures so that we can confront others who are facing similar situations or, or trying to navigate the fallout from similar failures. So next time you're called on to confront someone, consider how a story can help you as you seek to lovingly and clearly bring them face to face with God's truth. Thank you for your time tonight. We'll, uh, we'll have a quick word of prayer and be dismissed. If you have questions, um, feel free to reach out. Any homework you can leave up here. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are never done teaching us. And thank you for how you use a variety of means to, to teach us, including our own difficult experiences. Lord, help us to learn um, how we can use stories to help others, to confront others, to be Christ-like in the way we do that. Lord, guide us in this matter. We all need your grace. None of us are experts at this. None of us will ever be experts, but we want to grow. We want to be used. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.